0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney.
1: And I'm Andrew Kleinman.
0: On this week's episode, we welcome back Jade Saab, a Lebanese-Canadian scholar, for his second time on Radio Free Humanity, where he gives us an update on the political situation in Lebanon since the ammonium nitrate explosion on August 4th of this year. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, we will begin our conversation with Jade Saab about the political situation in Lebanon. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes for Andrew and I to talk about some current events. So we are recording this current events section on Monday, October 5th, although we don't release it until Friday of this week. Uh, Just a few days ago, Trump announced that he had covid and uh, we've all been following this story, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Although, who knows what the situation will be like by Friday. He could be dead by then, or he could be back to quote-unquote normal by then.
1: October, uh, October 2nd was my birthday. Oh, and happy birthday. My, w- my wife was just coming to bed, and it was one fifty-five in the morning. You know, that woke me up, her coming to bed. She didn't want to tell me. One second after I wake up, she says, Trump's got COVID and it was like the best birthday present I ever had. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we don't know what the situation's going to be like on Friday when the podcast comes out, but we also don't even know what the situation is like right now because there have been so many contradictory statements from doctors and Trump spokespeople and from Trump in his tweets. He's staging these ridiculous photo ops. We don't know when he got sick. We don't know how sick he's gotten. We don't know how much the virus has spread. And it's all because of him, because of the sort of insanity that is Trump.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. There's right now about a dozen people who have a positive diagnosis from inside the White House or people who were there where Amy COVID Barrett got nominated at that ceremony. And given how Trump runs things, where he's the hub and everything emanates from him, it's very likely that that's the spread of the, the, the coronavirus in this case as well. It's not a normal White House that works in a normal way. You know, he's the center of everything.
0: And we don't know how far the virus has spread from this super spreader event that is Trump. Uh, We know of the high profile Republican figures who've come forward to say they have COVID, but because the administration is not doing real contact tracing around Trump's movements in the past week, we don't know how many other people have been exposed at fundraisers, from the people that go to them, to the people who just work at them, like caterers and bodyguards and janitorial staff. But putting aside the horror that is irresponsible behavior leading to the super spreader events, It has been fun to see Trump sidelined by this thing. And it's also been interesting to see how various people in the media and and politics have had to respond to this. Obviously, a lot of us will be happy if Trump just died tomorrow, but not everyone can just come out and say that.
1: And then there are the hardliners, and I'm not the only one who say, no, we can't let him die. He has to be arrested, stand trial, and..." Do his time for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah, I know. But I just have so much anxiety about this election. I'd be happy for him to die tomorrow and just get this whole thing over with. But then obviously, there are people in the media or in people in politics be- who, because of their position, um, can't just come right out and say, Yeah, I hope he dies. The political fallout for them doing so would just be counterproductive. People like Joe Biden, right? He has to say something like, Oh, I'm praying for the president. And even pulled his negative ads, which maybe was a little bit over the top. But but there's a real strategic reason for him doing that. And obviously, there's a double standard. If Biden was the one with COVID, Trump would be going at him with both barrels and not respecting the situation at all.
1: If you think you've got the anti-Trump vote nailed down and that you're going, you know, for some insurance points, run up the board a bit with the Republicans who are wavering, then then you do it the, the, the way that Biden's doing it.
0: So one of the people opining on this topic this week was Glenn Greenwald, who wrote a piece in The Intercept on October 4th called Why Are Democrats Praying for the Speedy Recovery of a Quote Fascist Dictator?
1: Basically, Greenwald's conceit here, oh, it's right there in the first uh, sentence. Quote, the typical reaction to the death of a tyrant is not one of grief and sadness, but joyous celebration. It's not hard to understand why. Blah, 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 blah. Yet, in the U.S., a radically different dynamic is playing out. The overwhelming reaction in those mainstream precincts to the news that the fascist dictator has contracted a potentially lethal virus is to hope and pray that he makes a speedy recovery whereby he can resume his democracy-destroying, genocidal, tyrannical fascist rule. Uh, He's trying to be sarcastic there. And what he means by mainstream precincts is the, the Democratic Party politicians and journalists like Rachel Maddow.
0: So basically his argument is that, look, these people were never serious when they said Trump was a fascist in the first place, because now they say they're praying for him.
1: Right. He, he speculates that at the end, he calls himself a journalist but he has like this totally unfounded speculation on motives. And one is that these democratic politicians, I guess he considers Rachel Maddow, journalist, democratic politician. One possibility he speculates is that they've ascended to a state of spiritual elevation, whereby they're capable of praying even for what they believe to be fascists. And the one I think he really wants everybody to believe, may even believe himself, is the one he ends on. They don't really believe the things they've been saying about Trump and fascism and historical evil. That's all been for political advantage. He's still one of them. They see him as one of them, and they intend to rehabilitate and honor him once he's out of power. I'm I'm reading, right? That's, That's what he says. Then there's the explanation he begins with, which seems to be like, well, it's kind of what you said, Brendan, and it seems like obvious. Democratic leaders are pretending to be hoping for Trump's well-being for political purposes while secretly hoping that he suffers and dies. Or I guess, you know, people like myself hoping that, that he lives and survives and is arrested, goes on trial, and spends the rest of his days at hard labor. It seems to me to be the most likely explanation, and since 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 Greenwald has no evidence to the contrary, contrary, this just seems to be another attempt to take every possible thing. They managed to, to to take twist out of all proportion and make it a way to blame the Democratic Party and people like Rachel Maddow and thereby to further enable Trumpism.
0: Which takes us to the October 1st editorial that MHI released a few days ago called Trumpism, Democracy, and How to Vote from the Left. And it starts with this very issue of parts of the left that can only focus on fighting the Democrats as their main enemy, even in the face of the gigantic threat that is Trumpism at this very moment. We talk about the dangers of this way of thinking, and we urge people to put aside their personal sense of political identity or political brand, and to think about what's good for the mass of people who are suffering under Trumpism. I mean, there is no wiggle room here. If Trump wins a second term, it's the end of so many things, the end of liberal democracy in America. It's our last chance to do something about the environment. It's the end for the fight against COVID. It will be an unmitigated disaster if he wins a second term. So we say, look, people, it's not about you. People have to vote for Biden. Even if you don't live in a swing state, we need massive voter turnout for Biden. And people need to be ready to take to the streets to protect this election. That's the short version. We hope listeners will read it carefully, write in, respond to it, share it, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and it has a couple of images in the the editorial. One was designed for us. It shows a devastated city. It's being devastated by the, the death of democracy, people dead from coronavirus, and there's all kinds of dead fish floating in the water, people devastated by being shot by cops, and somebody there in the middle of the dead fish, the shirt that says, I'm voting Mickey Mouse. So the whole world will see how much I hate both the Republicans and the Democrats. And and people, when you go into the voting booth or you do a ballot by mail, no one sees it. It's a secret ballot. You're not making any kind of political statement at all, okay, by voting what you believe. The whole world doesn't see it. You have to think about the consequences of your actions. And you have to think about, you have to think strategically. Brendan, this is like kind of second nature for us, you know, thinking about politics, you know, in terms of consequences and strategically because we're we're politically active people. But I think that it might be just hard for people who don't have that kind of activist Uh, orientation and engagement, it it might be hard for people to think about politics in terms of what you can accomplish, rather than here, I'm expressing myself or here's what I believe, you know, so I, I, I guess I have a certain empathy for that, although it doesn't really come quite naturally.
0: Yeah, and one of the things we talk a lot about in the editorial is the importance of mass movements. You know, voting for Biden in itself is not going to crush Trumpism or solve all the pressing social problems we have right now. Uh, Mass movements will do that. But voting for Biden is a tactic at this moment that's necessary for those movements to have room to grow. Under a second Trumpist regime, we're going to have so much state repression and there's no path forward. I mean, already scientists are saying that, you know, if Trump wins a second term, it's like over for the fight against climate change. We're pretty much doomed. So this is like a crucial tactic that has to be done right now. And we're probably going to need mass movements, people to come out in the streets just to protect this election because, you know, Trump is going to try to undermine it every way he can.
1: Right. And those demonstrations are not for Biden's sake. They will be for our sake. They will be for the sake of our democratic rights to elect what the majority of people want. We don't really have that right in this country, even you know, if there are no underhanded moves. And these are demonstrations really for our lives.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a widely held sentiment amongst a lot of people who are choosing to vote for Biden or who are thinking about demonstrating to protect this election. They're not just like centrist, uh, democratic liberals or neoliberal shills or sort of these apolitical lemmings who can't think for themselves. They're people that understand what's at stake. They're concerned about their own personal safety and well-being, and the future of the planet and the future of their family and children. And they know we cannot survive anymore under a, a Trumpist presidency. But that is all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, our main segment, a conversation with Jade Saab about events in Lebanon. We are very pleased to welcome back Jade Saab to Radio Free Humanity today. We're recording this interview on September 11th of 2020. And we last spoke to Jade back in December of 2019 about the then somewhat new protest movement in Lebanon, And we wanted to have him back on the podcast today to give us an update on what's been going on in Lebanon, especially since the explosion last month. Jade Sab is a Lebanese-Canadian writer and activist. He's doing a PhD at the University of Glasgow in ideology and the process of socialist revolutions. He has a forthcoming book with Daraja Press titled A Region in Revolt that explores the most recent uprisings in North Africa and West Asia. So Jade, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for having me, it's good to be back.
0: Real briefly, your book, you said the most recent uprisings. So what uprisings are you writing about in the book?
2: Yeah, so we're actually covering the ones that started at the end of 2018 up to pretty much the middle of this year. So it's very kind of recent in terms of uh, what it covers. And the book itself, it's, it's a collection of works and it's divided into five essays or chapters, each dealing with a specific country. The countries we deal with in no specific order are uh, Sudan, uh, Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran. So it focusing on both historical aspects uh, of the recent uprisings and kind of tracing it back historically, while also highlighting the actors on the ground as well as the character of these uprisings. Uh, most chapters deal with the questions, you know, do we call them uprisings? Do we call them revolutions? So yeah, that's that's kind of the, the idea of the book.
0: Well, we will include a link to the book in the podcast description so listeners can find it there. Um, but let's jump into talking about Lebanon. Lebanon was back in the international spotlight again in August, on August 4th, when a huge explosion ripped through Beirut, killed 190 people, injured 6,500 people, leveled part of Beirut, caused 10 to $15 billion of property damage, left 300,000 people homeless. And it came out within a day or two that... Um, this ammonium nitrate that, had, that exploded was uh, being stored in the port for the last six years and that members of government knew about this and had done did nothing to dispose of the ammonium nitrate or warn people. Uh, they'd just been keeping it in this major metropolitan center. I can only begin to imagine what sort of emotions people in Lebanon must be going through right now. What's the mood on the street?
2: It's still a disbelief and shock. I mean, yeah, it's something worth highlighting is that as more details come out and as details almost immediately turned out that the ammonium nitrate that caused this explosion has been stored unsafely in the port since 2014. So essentially, residents have been living, you know, next to one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history for that many years uh, is, is still something we all we all know that the government in lebanon is uh, inept and, and corrupt but uh, but this took it to what I'm calling a transition from so, slow violence to fast violence to you know instead of just slow economic starvation you, you have literally close to 200 people being killed almost instantly uh, due to government uh, action and gov- or, or government inaction uh, and as detailed Details came out that pretty much everyone within the ruling class and within the government knew about this. And there were reports from the army several years ago warning about not just the danger of storing this, this ammonium nitrate, but the, the degraded state in which it's been uh, stored, which really heightens volatility. Not to mention that it was stored in the same warehouse where fireworks were found. So, uh, <laughs> so it's just a multitude of issues. And then to, to add to that, uh, after the explosion there was a military state of emergency that was uh, enacted and the port became under the control of the Lebanese army just a few days ago another massive fire broke out in another hangar very close to where the uh, the hangar uh, that exploded uh, this time uh, damaging a lot of the humanitarian aid that has been coming into the country uh, from the Red Cross so this is just a few days ago so it is uh, Um, I mean, needless to say, this has made the mood, you know, everyone is is on edge. Uh, Everyone is is very frustrated. Uh, Yesterday, there was a video going around on social media of uh, children in the near, you know, close to where the port is uh, in total kind of panic, crying to be removed from the city because just over a month ago, they had experienced the the horrible explosion. So you're talking about a city in in complete shock, uh, a city dealing with trauma, It's pretty bleak to say the least. And then somehow there's still the expectation that it's going to get worse as uh, the government uh, may very well move to remove subsidies from essential items such as fuel and food.
0: And that's in response to the ongoing financial crisis. Exactly. Yeah. So,
2: so that's as part of their panic to try and get international aid into the country and to try and just reduce the, the government deficit, which even if they took this small step is, is nowhere close to being a, a solution.
0: So the explosion also damaged these grain silos or what have you on the port, right?
2: Yeah, so the strategic grain reserve, the country's strategic grain reserve was right next to the the, the, the hangar that, that exploded. And, and it's kind of the really prominent building or, or structure that, that you can see in all the pictures of the port. Uh, there were the, the grain silos there. So so those have been completely lost. And, and this comes on top of reports earlier in the year, saying that we might be dealing with, with essentially a famine, with the, the death of children due to starvation by the end of this year. So it is uh, the infrastructure, the damage of this explosion, it's not just in the loss of life, uh, but in a country that has 80% of imports and the port itself processes 60% of those imports, you have a major loss of infrastructure uh, that, that connects everything, medical supplies, food supplies, uh, anything that Lebanon
1: actually needs.
0: So did- Daily protests have followed the explosion um, in August. Are these protests, in your view of things, are they different in character than the protests we spoke about last year when you were on the show?
2: I'll talk about the protest movement more uh, in broader terms, kind of since October of last year. I divide it into two phases. You'd have the first phase, which was very kind of cardinal-esque, I'd I'd say, uh, very festive, very comradely, which is great. Uh, It was able to mobilise a lot of people. But then, you know, as repression from the state increased, as well as the economic situation worsened, you started having more, I don't like to use the word maybe outbursts, but, uh, more displays of, of more direct action, of more violence against uh, state institutions as well as banks. Uh, I have called this as a, a process of kind of proletarization of the movement. But then obviously you had to deal with COVID. And as soon as uh, COVID was con- uh, was confirmed in Lebanon, there was the start of an emergency law. And this included the uh, mobilization of the army into the streets. Obviously, you know, the state used used COVID as an excuse. But while the army army was mobilizing for our health and safety uh, you know the health and safety of the Lebanese people uh, you know they also uh, made it a point to clear out what was left of protest tents protest encampments and roadblocks so essentially uh, they used it as a as a suppressive tool and this has carried on we have seen reinvigorated movements and protests over a short period sometimes 2 days sometimes 3 days sometimes just a day and every time they have come out with a stronger kind of character of direct action and confrontation. So for example, in the the weekend after the blast happened, uh, we saw new forms of direct action, such as the the direct occupation of government buildings, uh, as well as attempts to storm the parliament.
0: Yeah, I've seen some video online of skirmishes in the street between protesters and security forces. So they actually tried to storm a government building?
2: So they they succeeded in occupying a few uh, ministries. These occupations didn't last long, but I'd say this is a marked escalation because this is not something we've seen before. Uh, Before where we have seen it, it was mostly demonstrations outside of these buildings or the occupation maybe of uh, municipal buildings, but not national institutions. So you you have seen this, but there remains a big issue of confusion within the movement uh, due to a lack of leadership, due to a lack of political program. So the demands uh, or, or really remain in a, in a negative kind of sense. So they, they remain demands of what we don't want. There is no, the, there isn't a positive program yet. And, and it seems that the movement is hitting up on, on a sort of limit. Uh, I don't want to sound pessimistic about this. Obviously, uh, movements, you know, move in kind of cycles. So I, I'm not kind of writing uh, the movement off, which is something a lot of writers did as early as when they started in October of last here. But I am pointing to to weaknesses or or issues that the movement does need to overcome. I'll also point out that the economic situation in Lebanon continues to deteriorate. You're now talking about 22% of the population is now marked as an extreme poverty and 45% of the population is below the poverty line. So, you know, we will still be looking at changes in the movement and hopefully the emergence of, of a positive political program.
1: I think it's important for people to know that this isn't just like a country where poverty has been a constant, there's been a worsening.
2: To kind of point to this deterioration is a lot of this poverty is also tied to the currency crisis that Lebanon is having. So because of the uh, devaluation of the currency, uh, the unofficial devaluation of the currency, the banks, the, the central bank has not yet changed the uh, the exchange rate. Uh, th- there's been an inflation rate of more than 400%. Uh, so, so that is a big factor of why we, we're seeing these large growth of poverty.
1: So four, 400% means that what you would pay a year ago you're paying four times that amount right now. Yes. And that's the average have have wages and salaries kept up to any degree?
2: No, they have not. And because of this economic crisis, you you are also having a growth in unemployment. So, or pay cuts and all of that. So, it it's kind of on on all fronts. Uh, there is no reprieve.
1: Right, so that means that since their wages are not keeping up, their food budget has quadrupled. It's taking four times as much a chunk out of their their total pay as it did a year ago.
2: Exactly. Yeah, there's there's reports of you know supermarkets no longer even printing prices because they will have to change them the next
0: day. So last time we spoke, Jay, we talked about Lebanon's severe indebtedness and how that shapes so much of the politics, and also how that situation of extreme debt is in some ways the product of Lebanon's confessional system, right?
2: So what, what this has created is a, a situation where the, the state itself is used as a tool to siphon off government funds as well as build clientelist networks to benefit these different sects and their parties, followers or, or members. This has also linked itself with the banking system in Lebanon. So most of the commercial banks that I was just uh, speaking about are also owned or uh, by either these politicians directly or their family or their close contacts. And most of Lebanon's debt is actually owed to these banks, which the government kind of took money from them at at an exorbitant interest rate. So, you know, just this is a multitude of ways in which, you know, there is no line between public and private in Lebanon. And and they all belong to that same sphere of, of the ruling class parties. Uh, it's worth also saying that each of these parties have their kind of international backers, one of them being France. Uh, France also has a big colonial history in Lebanon. So Lebanon was a fr- uh, French, uh, in, in quotations, mandate country. So it was a, it was a kind of a, a colony of, of France from World War I onwards, essentially, until Lebanon's independence in the 40s. Uh, so now you've seen the kind of re-emergence of the figure of Macron as as Lebanon's savior, you know, showing up immediately after the blast, wagging his finger at the politicians. But at at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's worth noting Macron didn't show up on his own. He showed up with uh, with business leaders, French business leaders, because they're trying to put a bid in on running the port and uh, reconstructing and running it. And the new prime minister of Lebanon, who's now trying to form a, a government, has ties with a previous prime minister who's very powerful in, in the northern city of Tripoli, that is also a port city, where a French company has the rights of running that port So Macron's visit is being presented as some kind of friendly interventionist on behalf of the people to make sure that the government enacts this reforms. But what these reforms mean to unlock uh, foreign aid and foreign investment as well ultimately means the privatization of state assets, which include the port, which include telecom, uh, which include power. And uh, Macron's visit needs to be understood in this lens.
0: If listeners didn't hear our first interview with Jade Saab back in December, they should go back and check it out. We go into a lot more detail about the confessional system in Lebanon and how that really shapes all the politics in the country. The week after the explosion uh, in August, uh, when it came out that government negligence was to blame, Prime Minister Hassan Diab and his cabinet resigned. This isn't the first time a government has resigned in the face of public pressure. Is there anything different this time?
2: I mean, not really. Diab kind of served his purpose as being a bulk word of the movement, of being counter-revolutionary. I mean, it's very funny, when he resigned, he went on TV and gave this very, uh, you know, uh, heartfelt, again in quotation, speech about how the, the forces of the ruling class are beyond him and he tried to reform, but the the system doesn't want to reform, you know, even though he's been involved in government before being a, a prime minister. So, so no. Like th- this has become a bit of a revolving door. The the only difference of the the new uh, designated prime minister is the the turnaround for his assignment has been ridiculously quick, and, and this can be seen as a as a move to appease Macron. Uh, but in terms of the content uh, or the character of that. Person. No. Again, he was selected because of his business connections, uh, as I as I said before, with the uh, w- with the ports and and just him being palpable enough for the rest of the political parties. So so again, I'll say here that uh, the same with Diab as well, as well as most other prime ministers, they were not assigned through the proper consultative, you know, the the legal consultative methods that the parliament is supposed to. Go go through to assign a prime minister, you know, all of this happens kind of behind the behind closed doors, backroom deals, and then the parliament meets and votes for someone they had already agreed to vote on, you know, it's again, these different ruling parties that are not not so much pulling the strings, but kind of making a decision. And then the the parliament just enacts that decision.
0: So basically, the country can select different people, but they're basically just shuffling the deck and selecting uh, different cards from the same deck and you end up with the same ruling class calling the shots
2: yeah essentially and you know the only difference i'd say with diab and this new person is that they, they were not previously very public faces i mean with diab the ruling class was able to come out and say uh, well see this is a government of technocrats they they cut the number of seats in government not in parliament and and actually the the ministerial portfolios and then because they were mostly filled by people who had been in the background before were able to tell the protest movement that, see, we've met your demands, two of their demands being a technocratic, independent and smaller government. Uh, so they were able kind of to say, here you go. They threw some some pieces of bread at us and, and tried to get us to quiet down. And for some, it's worked. For for, for many, they've been, well, maybe we should give this government a, a chance. And And obviously, after this disaster that happened in the port, it's just becoming increasingly clear that, you know, it is just the shuffling of of, uh, of a deck of cards.
0: Yeah. And so you, it sounds like you're already starting to answer this, but the response of the protest movement to this sort of reshuffling, you know, what do you see happening with demands and people's understanding of what what sort of, sort of things should be demanded? We were talking back in December about people demanding to end of the confessional system altogether. Is that still a demand that's on the table?
2: I, I think there is an understanding that the only way to, to get past these problems is the end of this confessional system. The, the confusion that comes out is, is how back in October when the uh, of last year, when the protest movement started, there were uh, the main kind of uh, requests or demands where uh, the resignation of the government, uh, the formation of a smaller technocratic uh, government with legislative authority so that they can pass uh, a new non-sectarian electoral law, and uh, then hold early parliamentary elections. And this was actually a process or demands built on what is allowed within the Lebanese constitution but what what this means essentially is you're asking for your own oppressor to implement the your own conditions of, of reform and your own demands and you know the ruling class is not going to be its own executioner so so that's where the movement continues to, to be stuck the, the demands are still there in terms of Uh, building a secular uh, state, but but where it stuck is, all right, uh, how do we get about getting this? How do we build the power needed to be able to confront the ruling class? And it is worth, again, saying that although there were big protest movements it's it's unknown how many people still back the sectarian system. How many people still see it as, as something that preserves their their existence? It is an existential issue for a lot of people because you, you're you're in a country with so many minorities. Everyone sees themselves as a minority, and therefore uh, they don't want their representation in government being taken away. That's kind of how it's that's kind of how it's seen. So there there's still a big question about where is the balance of power, as well as how can this power be built to directly confront uh, the government. You, You have, you know, you've had this dance all over again after the explosion of all these parties blaming each other for the explosion or for the negligence of the explosion and for the corruption and everyone coming out and saying, oh, we're not corrupt. They're corrupt. We had nothing to do with this. Which is which is absolutely incredible I mean to, to give you an example the 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 ruling coalition in government right now uh, it, it continues this uh, this myth of them having no control and of not being able to push forward any real regis- legislation or r- real reform even though they are the majority in in the parliament so it's uh it's a complete sham and, and this carries back to the main slogan that came out of the protest back in October, uh, all of them means all of them. So, so I feel there, there is this understanding, and it is spreading this understanding that it is an entire ruling class, an entire system that needs to be tackled, not just in in the seats of government, because that's not where the real power is anymore. The real power is not just within the state bureaucracy. It's within this merger of the private and public spheres where they, they really have a hold of the entire productive forces uh, of capital in Lebanon. And maybe productive forces is not the right uh, term because Lebanon doesn't have a very productive economy. It's more a rentier economy, but, but you know, of the actual capital, you know, they have control of the, the, the property, uh, the land, uh, as well as uh, for a large uh, case, uh, control over the people uh, through through this sectarian mindset.
1: Uh, so Jade, you, you seem to indicate that within the protest movement, there's a lot of confusion. But I want to know whether that's confusion proper, such that you got a large group of individuals who are confused about what's going on and what to do, or instead maybe it's a movement that is beset by internal contradictions, different views of what the problem is, different ideas about what to do, and it's stalling because it's not working through these uh, internal contradictions.
2: I think to an extent it's that. It is a simple also due to historical reasons, and, and you know, uh, we deal with history as we get it, uh, th- There, there is a lack of infrastructure around the ability to mobilise, you know. So uh, even if a specific party or, or group within this movement did come out with a brilliant positive political programme, do they have the material forces to, to actually mobilise and to confront? and to, in many cases, perhaps uh, devolve into an armed conflict, in which we don't. So, you know, traditionally the labor movement, which even in the Middle East, so if you look at the case of Sudan, for example, where the, uh, the labor movement played a very leading role uh, in the uprising there, in the revolution there, you don't have that in Lebanon. One of the first things the ruling class did after the end of the civil war was set to dismantle the labor movement and co-opt it itself so you don't have this uh, infrastructure uh, in place to to even confront the the state or the ruling class in a cohesive way and it's this that needs to be to be built so there are two parts of this fight. One is, you know, an immediate defensive fight against the worsening economic uh, conditions, and the second is setting about building this uh, counterforce to the ruling class. And, And that's something that I think really needs to be highlighted and is something people on the ground really need to do, because you do have these small groups. And again, to go back in Sudan, you did have these very different small groups, but they were able to come together there. They formed a coalition called uh, the Forces of Freedom and Change. Uh, they were able to come together, uh, put together a, a political program, and are now in a strong negotiating position with the military government there, and, and are in a power-sharing agreement with the military there. Uh, Lebanon obviously has different conditions, but but this is something that we should be looking to to emulate while at the same time building local uh, local centers of power and building on direct action to deal defensively with these very dire economic uh, circumstances. And this can be, uh, you know, be it uh, occupations, redistributions, uh, squatting, uh, all these types of forms of direct actions that can help alleviate and build uh, mutual aid in in push forward this uh, political idea, then that's what should be done.
1: And how widely shared is the view that you've just put forward?
2: I don't think it is. It's something I think in the the article I wrote previously, you really started having these new political formations in 2005, and they really started coalescing in 2011. But even in 2011, they still had a big voting perspective. Uh, The the focus was on electoral politics. Uh, It's now very difficult to see that uh, how is this ruling class that is willing to you know openly kill us not just through this economic crisis but by storing and mismanaging these these explosives and then you know blaming each other again for for not allowing the other person to do proper work very unlikely that they're going to be moved through electoral politics uh, I don't think we've reached that stage of radicalism where we we've completely abandoned the electoral Uh, road to reform or or change. I think those groups that have adopted that uh, adopted that position are still small.
0: So when people are confronted with ideas like yours about what needs to happen at this moment, what is the response?
2: The big one is kind of just a, a, a cynicism. I mean, that, that's a big kind of, uh, if I can't call it a virus in Lebanon. And, and you know, I, I understand where it comes from because Lebanon has been through so much. The, just the belief in the ability of change itself is one that's, that's not commonly found. Uh, so, so that in, in and of itself, uh, there's also... Uh, arguments that are, you know, correct in, in positioning, but at the end of the day defeatist, is, uh, you know, what will we do in the event that there is a political collapse and these parties no longer have the, uh, the state in whichever form it exists to, to kind of hide behind and go back to uh, perhaps openly fighting each other as they have uh, during the civil war. Or worse off, the fact that there are armed factions within the ruling class that have had no problem uh, historically or during this movement in violently suppressing protests and, and attacking protesters, as well as we've seen an increased role in, for the army in doing that. So so there is this uh, Again, this, this imbalance of power and building that power in a grassroots kind of on-the-streets method takes a lot of time, a lot of trust, a lot of barriers to, 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 to overcome so that's why you end up having people maybe uh, leaning too much on international intervention. Uh, you know, unfortunately, when Macron visited, you had a lot of people, uh, I mean, uh, a lot maybe is, is an overstatement, but, but you have certain sections of society uh, arguing for Lebanon to return to, a, uh, to become a, col- a colonized state again by the French. So you still, you have various kinds of mentalities that need to be unraveled and you You need a a very direct and close relation to people to be able to walk them through these contradictions, these varied viewpoints, and ultimately, sectarianism itself.
1: So, I I take it you think that there's some justification in people's fear that a direct challenge at this moment to the system could unleash a, a bloodbath?
2: It's not even that. It's that we don't have the power for a direct confrontation. Like, like the 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 idea of having a direct uh, confrontation right now is untenable. Uh, you know, the biggest confrontation we've had was the the uprising in last October, and and you know, the ruling classes had no problem uh, riding that wave. Uh, similarly, as to this explosion, which is by any standards a, a you know, in any other countries, you'd have mass resignations. Uh, only a few members of parliament have resigned. And the, the government is now refusing to hold uh, by-elections due to, you know, they're citing uh, the economic situation and security situation, et cetera. So they're now even using the protest movement to uh, to, to stock up, uh, you know, to shore up resources and, and as an excuse to, to not do their their basic kind of uh, function of holding elections,
1: even if they were sham elections,
2: which they were.
1: So I'm I'm now somewhat confused as to what it is that you are advocating, because I thought that you were advocating uh, a direct challenge on the ground to the, the current system
2: well i i'm advocating that we need to start building towards that and and that it is only through the, build, the the process of building that that we can we can then lose kind of these these defeatist uh, ideas that that have been embedded in us
1: what does it mean to build to that or toward that
2: Well, for me, it would be building uh, first, uh, be it uh, local committees within neighborhoods, within uh, within cities uh, and and to take direct action and and direct action in terms of, you know, occupying uh, empty spaces, uh, housing uh, or, or starting to. Uh, maybe redistribute some uh, some food stuff, some food supplies. Um, I I think there is a space there where the ruling class will st- will not see that yet as a as a direct confrontation. So I think there is a very small space where that action, although you know it is direct action, can be framed in a defensive narrative, which is what it is in which any kind of intervention from the state itself will will make it will put it in an even more ridiculous position. Uh, I mean on top of that I, I do think that this needs to be coordinated by a um, by a coalition of these various small parties that have been emerging, the small movements that have been emerging to, to set who, who should be helping. In building this and a big part of that is the ability to tap into the international community and i don't mean here the international community as in foreign governments but the large uh, immigrant community lebanese immigrant community that is outside uh, that is living outside and we've seen how they've responded to the uh, this explosion at the port and how much money they've been able to mobilize and how much pressure they've been able to put on the state from outside themselves um if this was if this can also be focused and uh and put into use in a political sense, because of all of that money has now uh, gone into NGOs who hold a kind of apolitical stance, who only intervene humanitarian in a humanitarian sense. If all of that was was being funneled with a political program, then then that's a, you're building that power both externally as well as internally on the ground by having a. Um, a support as well as a leadership for uh, direct action in smaller localities
1: the the problem I, I see are these two poles of this is a set of defensive actions versus this is a way of trying to build a counter power and uh, I have I have I have doubts whether you can have it both ways, right? Especially because the government is going to be looking at it, and you're saying, well, maybe they'll they'll view this as you know not a threat to to their power. But what about if it succeeds? And I think that you would be regarding success as building a counter power, uh, or potential power, rather than just you know, making people's lives better and acting in a defensive way. The, the moment the powers that move from, okay, well, you know, these, these people are just trying to like get some food distribution going. We don't have to worry about this in terms of our own power. The moment they move from that to we do have to worry about this in terms of our own power. What happens to this counter power that you've supposedly been building?
2: Yeah, I mean, let me let me clarify here. Maybe, maybe I, I misspoke or, or didn't structure it. I, I think the government will see it as a, a, as a direct challenge. I don't think they'll be able to immediately, uh, you know, try to demobilize something like that because it would put them in, in in a more difficult position. So I think in that sense, they will be stuck. And, in, in, you know, I would argue that it is through the uh, dealing with the immediate material conditions of the people on the ground, that you can help them as well and explain to them, uh, you know, help them lose kind of both their defeatist or their cynical perspectives, as well as move them away from the uh, from the sectarian system and the sectarian ideology that's been uh, pushed uh, by the ruling class. So, so I, I, you know, at the end of the day, we are talking uh, on on a, a showdown of some sort. Whether or not this power is allowed, you know, as you point out, whether or not we can build this power, uh, th- there remains that that question of how do you then change that power, be it either into state power into you know the. Uh, the the old demands you know putting together a a new smaller government that can uh, enact a new electoral law so so it's not a, a it's not a program what i'm suggesting is not an a to z program but it is uh, i think a way in which we we can maneuver to uh, to begin building that power that is necessary to uh, to enact whatever program we're going to want to enact because it, it is going to depend on that power and and you know the way the counter-revolution reacts to that uh, is something that, that will then have to be dealt with on the spot.
0: Before we conclude this interview, we're just going to take a few moments to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
3: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing, an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice, and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
1: One of the central problems in the revolutionary movement, it seems to me, for a very long time has been this idea of trying to gain power and making that the focus and not thinking about what happens thereafter. This is the problematic that Raya Dunyavskaya, founder of Marxist humanism, made absolutely central. You know, she'd call it the question of what happens after the revolution, or even for short, what happens after. And the the idea is that a tremendous number of, of failures have occurred because all of these questions about what would be required, what, will, what it will take, what will be the obstacles in the process of creating something new, they get put on the back burner in the interest of building power. And then when the time comes, the movement is unprepared uh, to grapple with the problems that it confronts. And it seems to me that this inability to to grapple with these questions and, and refusal to grapple with them became codified as an ideology with people like the late David Graeber so that, I mean, you're talking about something very, very minor in terms of a setback in the broad, you know, uh, historical s- scope of things. You know, they, they, they occupied a square close to Wall Street, uh, and then when the city government wanted to clear them out, the city government just cleared them out, and that was the end of occupied Wall Street, and they, they never recovered. So this idea that you can... Just work things out as you go along through experimentation. And especially the idea that you can leave theory aside and not have that be an integral and in philosophy, what, what you're struggling for, and not work that out, but just build, build, build institutions and uh, alleged sites of counterpower. It seems to me that, that this has been tried again and again, and it's been more and more codified, but that it, it hasn't worked. And even worse, the fact that it hasn't worked has not led to any major rethinking of That kind of mentality, and that's what I find most distressful of all, that something is happening whereby I think people are so concerned with issues of control and power and building alliances and having massive numbers of people that they're willing to do what it takes to make that happen you know, to let ideological differences slide, to not have theoretical questions worked out because they might be divisive. And what they're doing, it seems to me, is setting themselves up for defeat when they they, they face obstacles or, or, or confrontations or, you know, the co-optation of people, all, all kinds of things come along. And it seems to me the most important thing that one has to organize, one as an individual and one as a movement, you have to organize your own things. Thinking. And and so that process of, of, of discussion, of theorization, of having that become public, widespread, not just, you know, behind closed doors, but, but in the mass movement itself, it seems to me that that's hugely uh, important and, and needs to be taken into consideration. And this other stuff, y- you know, y- you, you can look like you're building a lot of things, And then it, like with Occupy, it just collapses when it's pushed on.
2: I'll start by saying I I 100% agree with you. These conversations need to be had. Uh, the question is who's you know we still we don't even have someone to have these conversations so so that that's where the movement kind of is at this stage it's still trying to find itself and actors within the movement is still trying to find itself and even even those actors who have a, a battle plan so to speak uh, do not have the ability to mobilize people to enact their plan so so that that's a an aspect of it and and a second part of it is I don't think it's up to me to kind of come up with that plan. This is something that I that I would argue needs to happen within these sites of contention that also need to be built. So I, I don't see it as a way if there's a, a theoretical part where we all, you know, different parts get around the table and we decide, okay, this is the plan, and then go out and, and implement it. You know, there, there is this this dialectical process that that's happening as the movement itself unfolds. And the reason uh, it's happening Uh, so late and it is so underdeveloped are because of historical reasons.
1: Right. I I wasn't talking about formulating a plan either on one's own or by sitting around and negotiating it. It, it. It's more a question of the dialogue that needs to be had now and in an ongoing way so that the movement can form a real unity in terms of what it wants where it sees itself going, how it's going to operate and confront the uh, internal divisions within it and the forces outside. I mean, that, dis- that requires a long and ongoing process of discussion. I'm not saying, you know, you, you design a plan, right? Not at all. In relationship to what you're saying right now, my question would be what is the obstacle that is preventing or what are the obstacles that are preventing uh, internal and external obstacles preventing different individuals and groups in the movement from engaging in this broad public discussion and more importantly uh seeing to it that that process is going to continue
2: yeah, that, that is the biggest barrier, I would say, of the movement in Lebanon. I'd mark it down to just them being underdeveloped, them being immature movements, uh, as in they're either very, very new, many of them formed during the last election cycle. So we're talking, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head, 2017. Uh, and many of that had formed before, for example, starting 2015, are not revolutionary organizations, are purely electoral political organizations. So when confronted with something as daunting as a revolution, which is a a, a daunting project, uh, do not have the politics to to cope with it, to deal with it. So so that's why I'd say the priority is and and the site of these conversations need to be had as we're working toward building a coalition that can put forward a political program. It is through that process that we will have this ideological clarification that you're talking about, this working through internal contradictions. But at the end of the day, even even once that is set, you know, the counter-revolution itself also adjusts forces and and, and changes things on its behalf. And, you know, the the quote I keep uh, coming back to is, you know, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy is uh, is something that in revolutionary situations, you are dealing with just a a highly complicated and continuously changing and evolving situation. Uh, But to answer your question more directly, I think that discussion needs to be had as uh, specific groups are building towards a coalition, and I don't know that any groups do want to build towards uh, a coalition. The the only direct call I've seen to do that has been from the Lebanese Communist Party, but not a lot of people want to work with the Lebanese Communist Party because of their own history, etc. So, so you are dealing with, with with just historical factors that are getting in the way of this happening, as well as a level of underdevelopment within the movement itself. Going back to the lessons that you were talking about, the side idea of, you know, we need to have this. I think people, or specific, certain people in Lebanon are aware of this, because we've seen the examples of uh, Egypt, for example, where there wasn't this kind of project, and then where it succumbed to, uh, you know, reaction, and then the counter-revolution. So I, I think this is something that people are aware of. And a shameless plug here is, Part of the intention of me working on that that book I've edited is to draw on lessons from uh, other countries in the region and what their experiences have been in building this power and this political program and working through their contradictions.
1: I I just have one question that's nagging on me because I got a sense from what Jade was saying in the prior episode that a very different sense that I'm getting this time. And the sense I got last time was that he was saying that sectarian identification had greatly eroded such that people were not hostile to members of other sects of Islam or Christians versus Muslims, whatever it was at least not the way it had been before and that was undermining the the confessional system, the the, the power-sharing system. Uh, This time I'm getting much more of a sense that that self-identification in terms of being a member of a particular religious community is much stronger than the sense I got before.
2: Yeah, I'd say not that it's much stronger. I'd say it's inescapable, like because it is built into, you know, to give you an example, like my religion, even though I, I'm not a religious person, is on all my official documents except for my uh, ID. So so it, it's just inescapable in a, in a system sense, even if people are themselves secular, it's just inescapable. You know, a, a common phrase in Lebanon is, uh, I'm not sectarian, but the system forces me to be. So you live in this kind of duality where, you know, on on a personal level, you're not sectarian, but the system forces you to operate in a sectarian way. You know, it's a a truism. I mean, a lot of, you know, use this as a joke, but it is also a truism. People who are better off tend to be able to escape this because they don't need to lean on these clientelist networks to secure their their material needs. So, so yeah, I I understand how you can see that that might be contradictory uh, of, of, of what I've previously said. It is. I'd say it's a a bit slightly more nuanced. I'd say this concept of all of them means all of them has shown that, that, you know, the only way to overcome this is by overcoming the sectarian system itself. But that doesn't mean that there doesn't remain uh, resistance and resilience uh, of the sectarian system itself. And this is not to build on the way sectarianism intersects as well with with class and with another big uh, idea in Lebanon, which is the role of, uh, in quotation the resistance the role of hezbollah uh, as a both a state and a non-state actor which plays very heavily on on sectarian rhetoric so it, it's a it's a bit of a web to, to untangle
0: well we are definitely out of time in this episode so we're gonna to have to end the interview but jade thank you so much for this interview it's been fantastic no thanks yes, for thank
2: having you. me and I'm, I'm happy to be able to give some insight
0: And thank you to our listeners for checking out the podcast. If you like the podcast, please do like the podcast, rate the podcast, leave comments, write to us. If you want to know more about the issues discussed, you can visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org.